Hi there, everybody. Ed asked me to chime in and let you know about me. My name is Dan, and I am weird. But I don't see weird as a bad thing. Weird just means people marching to the beat of a different drum, not fitting into that hole that society wants to shove you into. On my show, The Power of Weird, I'm talking to people like me. The weirder, the better. So when you're done listening to this great episode of the Dead America Podcast, come on over to thepowerofweird.com and start the descent into your weirdom. And remember, be the weird you want to see in the world. I'll see you next time on The Power of Weird. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. And we are deeply honored today to have with us Dr. James Perdue. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Perdue to let him tell you what he does and how he got there. Hey, Ed, thank you for having me on your show today. And I tell people with doctor on there, don't take it too serious. You know, we just learned to play the game uh, to get that uh, title. Uh, but uh, I can't write out prescriptions or anything for anybody, but I can drive you to your <laughs> local store and pick them up for you is what I can do. Amen. So, uh, but uh, hey, I got my uh, neck broke playing football. I was two weeks into college on a baseball scholarship, and some people got together one day and was playing a pickup game of football. Now, we were playing tackle, but we did not have on helmets or pads anything for protective, but we were playing tackle. Uh, I've probably been out there maybe two hours, and my team got the football back, and I remember in the huddle saying, Hey, I've been out there for two hours. I need to get my stuff ready for class next day. And so I left the huddle. I got about 10 feet away. And then I heard someone say, we need someone to run the ball. I turned around, stopped. And I said, all right, I'll come back for one more play. That one play, one more play is what uh, dictated my life where it's at today. They handed the ball off to me. I bust through the line bust through a few tackles, scored a touchdown. And as I turned around towards everyone, putting the ball down to the ground, you know, touchdown, the play's over. But one guy decided to continue the play after the touchdown was scored. And I saw something in my peripheral vision, something on the right side. I have no idea what it was. I just saw something. I felt contact up high, by shoulder high. And then I heard a loud pop. And both of us went to the ground. And that day, only one of us returned to our feet. And I'll give you a little hint there, Ed. It wasn't me. How did that make you feel? I ended, I tried three times to get up. So I lifted my head. and Because when I heard the pop, I thought my right collarbone had gotten broken. 
And I was one of them that was in, I felt invincible all the time. And so mm -hmm. this guy here, he was jumping up and down. He tackled me and whatnot. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll tackle you. I'll show you. Cause I figured I was left-handed and the, the, I thought the right collarbone was broken and I was left-handed. So I thought, well, I'll just fight this guy left-handed. And so, um, I lift my head to yeah. get up and nothing followed. No shoulders didn't follow. The arms didn't come up. Legs definitely didn't move. So I laid there and I tried a second time to get up. And then I actually tried a third time thinking three's a charm and three wasn't a charm. And I knew instantly I was paralyzed. I, when I was 12 years old, I met a gentleman named JT in a nursing home. My grandfather was in a nursing home and he was about two two rooms before I got to my grandfather. And so at the age of 12 or 14 years old, I remember uh, going to go visit my grandfather one time and this guy hollers when I was past his room, he says, hey, bud, come here. And I go into his room and says, can you hold this water? Can you hold this cup of water so I can get a drink? And he was paralyzed from his neck down. And so his name was JT. So I stopped and talked to him every now and again. But uh, once, once I realized I was paralyzed instantly, all of a sudden, I started thinking in my head, it's going to be a shame that I'm 19 years old and I'm going to be in a nursing home. And so yeah, it was it was brought to uh, lifelike very quick. So were you angry at the person and how did you get over that anger? I don't know if I was ever angry at him personally. Like, again, I was in college for two weeks. So if that guy was to come up to me today and handshake me, I'd never know it was him. Uh, I don't remember his yeah. face or anything. I don't know his name. The only thing that I remember, about six months later, I had heard from some people down in college that he was kind of bragging about the hit. And I hate, I hope it, that's not true. Uh, not that he's bragging, but somehow... Uh, they brought up my name or something and he supposedly made a comment. I remember the day when I knocked hell out of him and I hope that's wrong that uh, he didn't really feel yeah. that way. And I think, I think he came to the hospital to see me once. And the only reason I think it was him was uh, I was on what's called a striker frame, had these bolts and screws in my head and had a rope off it hanging like 10 pounds of weight off over to stretch my neck trying to get the vertebrae back in place. And on this striker frame, you lay two hours on your back, you get to stare at the wall, and then they come and strap you in, and they flip this striker frame, and then you lay an hour on your stomach. So it's to help prevent pressure sores while you're laying there. One day I was staring at the floor, and I heard the door open, and two guys come in and talking with me and told me they were from the college from where I got hurt, injured, and so after we got done talking, now here's the only reason I think it may have been him. When they both left, I heard the door shut. But then I heard the door open and I heard someone say, I'm sorry, man. And then the door shut. Well, that's that's a good thing when and if it was him, he realizes what he had done. Yeah, I really pray that that's not the case that they're bragging like that either when when somebody loses their life basically over nonsense that's just crazy going through that 
I could never imagine living that long in your circumstance. How often do you have to move and turn? And do you have to have assistance with that? When I first got injured and they did all the tests, did x-rays, and then they did a myelogram to check the spinal cord. And they first told me that I would never walk again, possibly not move from my neck down. And actually, the doctors advised my family, which then was my mom and brothers, that um, I would be too much of a burden for them to provide care, and they would need to just put me in a nursing home. And <laughs> there again, when I'm laying on that ground, I'm thinking of JT and thinking how bad in 19 to be in a nursing home. And here is a doctor confining what, you know, my, my mom and brothers ought to do. And thankfully, they didn't listen, and I didn't listen, and... We were all hard-headed and everything like that. And so uh, I, I can move my arms. I do push my own wheelchair. I can drive my own vehicle, get in and out of bed, you know, shower and stuff like that. But, you know, I do need some assistance sometimes, you know, to help get dressed sometimes or to get into bed sometimes. Uh, but, there, you know, it's not all the time. And it's, uh, you know, nice that you have people that can that can help, uh, help you when you need it. But you know, when I first got hurt, yeah. It didn't look too promising. And um, actually, they didn't give me a real long time to, they, they thought maybe I would live like 15, 20 years. I guess that was the going rate back then. Uh, now it's been 30, nearly 37 years that we're moving on. And uh, my doctor tells me, and of course, my doctor tells me to quit saying this. He didn't really say it, but I tell people, my doctor says, other than being overweight and can't walk, I'm in great shape. <laughs> Well, I find that interesting, that fact that you stated the doctors tried to tell your family to put you in a nursing home. I was on a show and she said the same thing. It happened to her. She has cerebral palsy. That's interesting that they're telling family it's better that you just get put in a nursing home. That that's crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that's you know 40 years ago medicine, not today's medicine. I hope they're not still saying that. And even then, I mean, I understand that people to get injured or 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 where the naturally where they're born this way that if they get lack the use of using their arms and legs. Hopefully, still that's not the first thing they say. Well, let's put them in nursing home be easier. Um, hopefully the families are more, you know, more into this is still my baby, my child, and we're going to take care of him as long as possible. Hopefully, hope, again, hopefully that's medicine was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Hopefully it's not today's type of medicine. I found that interesting when she was born, they tried to have her put into a home instead of the family raise because of the care level. And I've yeah. noticed that they are actually doing a lot with that now with in-home care workers that come out and help the family now. And that's great. I, I really find that to be helpful. You have a, a friend and her, her mother had uh, was going downhill and stuff and she was going as much as she can and her, her brothers were helping as much as they could, but yet the in, in-home Healthcare 
it, that's that's a godsend. That's a blessing right there to help to live. If nothing else, it helps takes a load off the family a little bit, so they're not as stressful. Especially right now in this time, we want to say thank you to all of those that help those people because of the social distancing. It, it can be kind of crazy. So those people are just wonderful. You also have a service companion dog? I have a Ricardo. Yes, I do. He's uh, I got him from Canine Companions for Independence. Their organization uh, assuming you qualify and they have like a four or five step process you have to follow. But if you qualify and everything, they're canines. I don't want to say dog because he's more than a dog. They're canines or uh, given to you for free. Where in most organizations, you've got to pay, you know, 10, 20, 45, 50,000 for that, for that dog care. There's, there's a, uh, they do fundraisings all year round. They don't have the government, you know, red tape on, on that so they're able to give the dogs out for free for the people that uh, qualify for them that's great and now if i read right they train those dogs in prison some dogs go from their organization some of their dogs go into the prison system to be used in my mine ricardo he was actually in a mississippi prison system with this one gentleman that uh, they do partial training. I'm assuming the ones for, you know, to sit or shake, when to go to the bathrooms to, you know, I'm assuming it's those, those type of training. Whereas when he left the prison system from that gentleman, then he went to Orlando, Ricardo did. And there, I think they gave him the final training where he picks things up off the floor to give to me, or he may learn to, turn lights off and on, pull a drawer open, close the drawer. So I'm sure they do the basic training in the prison system. And again, not all dogs from the organization goes into the prison system. But when we had our graduation there, nine or 10 of us are getting canines. And a minute ago I said dogs, but again, these are, these are well-trained. They're more than just dogs. Um, probably about half of them, was at a regular household getting their training where the other half had been in a prison system. Uh, two of them were in the Florida prison system. Mine was in Mississippi, and I can't remember where another one was, but about half, it seemed to, from my, from my viewpoint, again, from that graduation, it was about a half uh, in and out. That's awesome that they're doing that. So now... You were a teacher, or are you still a teacher? I was. Um, I've been out of teaching. Well, I was a teacher and a coach. Uh, I was. I've been out of that for ten, twelve years now. So, um, sad thing about it is, uh, life comes and seems like when you're doing well and everything, life comes in and kicks you into tea sometimes. And um, I had gotten. I attempted suicide. And when you attempt suicide, you're, you're according to the school system, you're you're incompetent to be in a classroom. <laughs> so instead oh. of them trying to help out, they want to try to fire you. And so I, of course, I knew that. And when I survived, I just went on and resigned before uh, the other thing. But uh, um, what had happened is um, I got bit by a daggum brown recluse on the bottom of my foot and didn't know it until there's a sword the size of a tennis ball, and they had to go in and cut all that 
dead tissue out and let new tissue grow over that uh, uh, where the bite was. And so they told me not to stand on my foot or anything because it's going to break the new tissue trying to grow. Well, after six months of not staying, I used to be able to, I got strong enough where I was able to stand to transfer, to transfer, to get into bed, to transfer, to get out of bed, to get into vehicle, get out of vehicle. Well, after not standing, then I lost the strength of my legs to do that. So then I needed more help at the beginning of people helping me in my car, out of my car, into the shower, out of the shower, on the toilet, off the toilet, in the bed, out of bed. And I felt, I felt um, like a burden. You know, like uh, we mentioned earlier, the the uh, doctor said, you know, too much of a burden to care for. So I felt like a burden. Also, if you go back a few months earlier, the reason I attempted suicide, here's one reason, is one, feel like a burden. But also, my younger brother, he was an alcoholic, but he was a functional alcoholic. He worked during the day, and he would drink what he could at night, uh, but he'd get up and go to work the next day. But one night, I couldn't get into bed, and he'd come to help me in bed. We, but before that, we'd got him to the hospital. His liver wasn't acting right. He was getting jaundice. And they told him that if he continued drinking the way he was, they gave him a 10% chance of living five years. He did stop for a while, but then he picked it up and started drinking again. And he was an auto mechanic. And so they told him he had a ulcer in his stomach and a hernia not to pick up anything heavy with uh, the hernia and ulcer. Well, one night I couldn't get into bed, and he helped me in bed, and that night he died. And so I felt responsible for his death, that if I could have got in bed, that he would still be here. And so I had all this for months, plus feeling like a burden piling up on me. And so I was trying to get out to to end everything, to be the way it wouldn't be a burden to anybody else, and to get away from the pain of thinking I caused his death by, uh, if I'd have got in bed. Yeah, that's not good feeling when we get feeling like that. I've, I've actually experienced a bout of that myself when I experienced my injury and I could no longer work. I asked for assisted suicide here in Oregon mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm really glad that the doctor at the time really used his good judgment and said hey look you're just going through a little bit of a thing here but the the point where you're looking to kill yourself and that's the point where you really think you've lost it all myself when that happened i lost my home i had a wife and all i had was a van we were living in arizona a hot desert climate, you know, I, I just had nowhere else to turn. And that's the moment we were putting our stuff in the storage shed because we were going homeless. And that's the moment it popped for me. And I had my F U fight with God right out in the Mm -hmm. middle of the parking lot. You know, I really had a mental breakdown moment where I really didn't know what to say, do, and all I could do is F you, you know, uh-huh. yeah. and uh, my my wife was wondering, who are you talking to? What the mind 
will really torment one's self. And that is a horrific feeling to go through when we're wanting to kill the most precious thing on this earth is our life. How did you get over it? And you're correct. When you lose uh, that sense of hope and everything, then that, that's, that's, when it, that's when you start going down that rabbit hole, isn't it? So Yeah, yeah. yeah what, what had happened with me is I attempted suicide three times in three days. <laughs> and I wrote a book, One More Play, and the chapter talks about my suicide. And the title in the chapter is called uh, Three Strikes and You're Not Out. You know, because I was a baseball player, so three strikes and you're not out. And so the first day, I uh, bought uh, two packs of Sudafed, and um, I think there's 24 in a pack, so 48 pills are in it. And on the pack, it says, do not operate machinery to drive vehicles. It causes drowsiness, and don't take them more. And I think it was six pills in 24 hours. So uh, I took, instead of six pills for 24 hours, I took 48 of them in three minutes. Then I got out of my wheelchair to lay on the floor. That way, if I felt bad enough, I wouldn't get to a phone and call for help. So my brother came in that night because I knew he was going to have to help me in bed. And so, but I'm not here. I'm on the floor. And because I thought, I, you know, I thought I'd be dead. And all I got was a pounding headache out of that. Isn't that pitiful? 48 pills and just got a pounding headache. Yeah. We had to call, you know, 911 yeah. to help get me off the floor, to help me in bed, everything. And see, by then, I've already mailed out my uh, suicide letter and uh, $2,000 cash to my mom and brothers, debit cards, credit cards, and telling her a form because I'd just gone to the bank trying to withdraw all of my money. They wouldn't let me take with only 2000 And so um, so I, 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 I mailed everything to her. Again, in shame, 2000 cash went through the mail. Uh, I just didn't want it laying around in the house in case somebody, you know, somebody going through it when I was dead and not know anything. And so, so it gets, so that's in, that's in the mail day and everything. So the very next day I called uh, like Walmart or CVS or something. And, and it said, Hey, I'm having insomnia. Can't sleep. What do, you, what do you recommend? And they said Benadryl. Well, all I had was enough money to buy one pack of Benadryl. So 48 of the Sudafed, another, Here's another 24 pills of Benadryl. And this is Super Bowl Sunday where the undefeated Patriots are playing the New York Giants, Eli uh, Manning. And all I did was sleep and miss the Super Bowl and wake up to hear that uh, Eli and the Giants won. So uh, all I did was just sleep. Yeah. I mean, took 24 more pills and all I did was sleep and miss the Super Bowl. And woke up the next day. And now, because that weekend I'd, I'd made phone calls to former teachers and left messages at that school system for them so they would I knew they wouldn't get it over the weekend this is over the weekend so now I'm getting phone calls at 6 30 6 5 30 in the morning people checking their message and I'm going oh y'all just overlooking it and all I would do is thanking y'all for all that you've done for me so then I get in my van and uh start it up in my garage and get out of my van laying on the out of my wheelchair laying on the floor sucking in carbon monoxide and I remember finally passing out. Um, then someone came to my house and they said I wasn't breathing and said they didn't know CPR. So they were slapping me in the face. 
and they called, you know, paramedics to come, 911, and they told them uh, 10 more minutes, I probably would have been dead. So he rushed me to the hospital, put me in a hyperbaric chamber to force all the carbon monoxide out and the of my body and they put oxygen into the body. And then I was in the hospital for like seven weeks. And then I tell people this as a uh, trying to ease the tension of when I tell this part of the story is, um, you know, when you try to attempt suicide and you live, they make you see a psychiatrist. <laughs> and so uh, that yeah. gentleman there was a blessing for me that he's the one recommend that I have a story. I need to write a book. I need to get out and speak. And so I've been out, you know, trying to public speaking to get message out to provide encouragement for someone. And I feel this is my purpose in life now where I lost my purpose, lost my hope uh, for the during a suicide attempt. But I believe now uh, putting the story out, trying to help other people uh, and then um, going from there. I think I think this has been a, a good thing overall now. Yeah, you know, once we go through experiences that change us in our core, we recognize that we can turn that around and we can try to change the world with that. It helps us make those changes, even if they're little baby steps, because a lot of my change, it's come from little tiny changes. Uh, I could never have imagined I would be here when I look way back where I was, that's the thing my counselor said, you know, maybe you can help change and advocate. I had no clue how to do that. I had no clue about podcasting or social media. And I was still very angry when I started doing this sort of stuff, but just talking getting your story out letting other people understand how you actually feel it has helped me it saved my life and the people i've met because of podcasting it's changed who i am and it's definitely given me a new direction with new hope when we find that in us building a new beginning and a new theme for our life. It, it changes everything about us. I had to change who I was. My diet has changed. My circle of friends have changed. Who I want to be around has changed. You know, all of these changes happen and you really don't understand how or why they're happening as they're happening because you're still feeling this emotional turmoil inside. We're always struggling with that. Once we understand how to better ourselves by helping others, it's a good feeling. And that's somewhat what you're trying to get done through what you are doing now, is it not? And what you mentioned, Sego, Ed, that, uh, you know, get out and talking about telling your story, helping other people. Isn't it a, isn't it a form of um, therapy uh, that you don't have to pay for? And so, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, you're, you're able to open up for it that, that you would pay a counselor for, you know, $300 an hour or whatnot. But uh, here's, here's the way you can open up 
It's a form of therapy for you. And it's a form of therapy for them to listen and for them to gain information that can be used. And there was one one time I went to a speaking event. And again, I was going to say whether it's podcast, and you mentioned podcasts specifically, or public speaking, or and I'm doing a YouTube YouTube channel as well, that um, whatever way to get your message out, blogging, whatnot, that you're helping someone in the long run that's going to, you know, what we're going through, we're not the first ones, and we won't be the last ones. One event I went to, uh, Ed, after I got done speaking, told my story and everything, a woman come up to me and she says, I don't know why I came here, but I was led to be here. And she says, I had no intention of being here. And he says, I saw, I don't know, I, I don't remember how she told me she found out about the program, but she said, you know, I was led to come here and she believes that God led her here. And she thinks part of it was to hear my story and to help her with a situation she's going through. And I said, well, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate that. And so I went on and gave her a copy of my book just for, uh, for that and uh, thanked her for it. Well, when about a week later, the organ, the one that organized that event sent me an email from that woman that I spoke to. And basically, I, I don't remember the whole email, but basically it said she was told she had six months to live and her being at the event and hearing me was going to help her accept that more and to... Um, Basically, basically, one thing I tell people is, you know, tell people you love them uh, while you can now. Uh, don't let it be something hanging for when you pass, whenever something happens. So, um, and so she she was telling them that the hearing me is going to help her deal with that situation then. But can you imagine, wow. I mean, here I am, you know, talking, attempted suicide, but can you imagine, you know, of course, now I got a better outlook in life and better mindset now uh, than I was during that time. But can, can you imagine, you know, when you, you're, you're not wanting to die and you hear you have six months to live, that's gotta be tough. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I don't know how I would handle that, you know, and so many people do. Those are heroes that are hidden and strength that people find in adversity and overcoming it that's what it's all about and just hearing your story and knowing other people go through different types of adversity it helps a lot of people and the first time you hear somebody say you have helped me yeah it caved my heart it's like that's all i need man i I don't need anything else. I'll continue down this path. And it's a rough path doing podcasting and speaking and trying to help others through your own experiences. It's it's a challenge in itself. How long have you been doing public speaking? Yeah, public speaking, uh, it didn't fly as, as much as I would like, but I guess it flew as much as it needed to. But uh, been at that 10, 12 years. Uh, again, after meeting with the psychologist, uh, he, he's the one that recommend joining Toastmasters and then joining the um, Speakers Association and learn how to do things 
to speaking correctly out there. And so I, I attempted everything, I guess maybe 10, 12 years. And so, but that has led me you know, to other issues again. I mean, not issues, but other avenues uh, or whatnot. Again, doing, trying YouTubing and um, getting my own podcast uh, going and things. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a challenge. And one thing you mentioned about adversity is um, I, I've learned from, th- from, from this and I tell other people, you, you may not know how strong you really are until you face adversity. You face that challenge. That's right. That's that's a strong statement right there. Have you uh, heard of uh, Captain Charlie Plum? I have not. Captain Charlie, I would I would recommend that you reach out to him, and I can give you um, his information. But Captain Charlie Plum, back in the Vietnam War, his plane was shot down, and he was a prisoner of war for nearly six years. And he's awesome to have on your, you need to get him. And, but he, his, uh, one of his statements he made is adversity is a terrible thing to waste. That's, that's a very true statement. And, and, you know, until you go through that, you don't understand the value of that statement. (laughs) So it, it, it can really build you when you go through adversity. And I, I say failures and adversity they're building blocks to a better life yes sir well james is there anything else you would like to discuss no i don't think i think we're doing well here just uh want to tell people uh i like to leave people with the saying that um you need to practice your abcs and when i mean practice your abcs i mean a accept your adversities all right, whatever it is comes through life, whether it's spinal cord injury, uh, whether it's uh, cancer or heart, whatever it is, accept that adversity. Then B, again, with your ABCs, B, begin your battle. Now here's where you get as much information about whatever you're going through, and you may have to find other people who's been through it to get help and advice from them. So now begin your battle, and then C, let's conquer the challenge. So take all the information, everything you've learned, and muster it up. Get your strength going. Now let's conquer the challenge. So everybody practice your ABCs. Hey, that's awesome. Uh, I like that. Um, James, how can people reach you and get a hold of you? All right. Thank you, Ed. And uh, again, I'm James Purdue. I'm sure you can Google uh, that to get my website and whatnot. But if you remember this, I'm also known as the professor of perseverance so you can go to my webpage at professorofperseverance.com or go to my instagram professor of perseverance or go to my youtube channel professor of perseverance and podcast will be starting soon which will be professor of perseverance and that's going to be an awesome podcast people make sure you Get in touch with James. Find out how you can get on his podcast. Change comes through people connecting, telling stories, and understanding one another. I want to say thank you so much for James for coming on. Dead America is about people feeling lost, neglected, confused, misunderstood, and forgotten. 
let's not feel that way. Thank you, James, for being on the show. Ed, thank you for what you're doing because I know you're changing lives again. I've told other people 100 years from now, someone's going to find these podcasts and someone is going to get uh, some help. So appreciate what you're doing, Ed. Thank you very much, sir. You enjoy your afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.